Welcome to the Classical Music Pod. Lined up for you today is an interview with Jules Buckley, the conductor, orchestrator, arranger and creative artist in association with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. Very exciting. Very exciting. People might know him from his work with the Heritage Orchestra and Mm -hmm. Pete Tong Mm -hmm. or Jamie Cullum. Metropole Orchestra. Oh, that's so good. Uh, Or if you listen to the BBC Proms podcast when it was on a few years ago, uh, Vicky Stone calls him the bearded Jules Buckley. I think every single time she mentions. Him. A great big bushy beard. He looked hot wearing it in a kitchen when I spoke to him over Zoom. Sexy hot or just warm? I think probably both. We were mostly talking about his Aretha Franklin prom that he's got coming up on Monday the 22nd of August uh, that he's giving with the Jules Buckley Orchestra. It's their first outing. I asked him if that would have surprised a little Jules heading off to the Aylesbury Music Centre with his trumpet. Yeah, definitely. I think I think so. It's, I think it's never something I imagined would happen. Like so many things, at a certain place, suddenly in life, you realize, oh wow, we're doing that. But um, I think my younger self would um, probably be thinking like, that's a bit of a hyperbolic name. Sort it out. You know, probably that. Just a little bit more critical, yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, it's a great treat to have you on. The first thing I need to do is, is thank you, actually, because it's given me an excuse to re-watch one of my favourite videos ever, just on loop, under the name of Research, which is, uh, do you know the Aretha Franklin performance at the Kennedy Centre? Uh, yeah. Honours, uh, when she sings Natural Woman. And I'm yeah. just in, I'm in tears in like three seconds. Does that track have a similar effect on you? Or is there something else that's your sort of emotional heart for her repertoire yeah that's that's that track is the descending sequence right in the verse and just the fact that it kind of I guess just the melody is so beautiful and obviously her voice is the best voice (laughs) ever (laughs) it means that um I almost feel like there's a few songs within the pop pantheon that where I like the verse more than I like the chorus and that's one Mm. of them and another one would be um Across 110th Street, Bobby Womack. Yeah. Those two for me are kind of two examples where it just like within two seconds, as you rightly pointed out, it, it just sets the scene and you're you're hooked into that scene, right? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Across 110th Street and, and this tune, they're like brother, sister in that regard because the choruses are cool, but without those verses, the tune would just be, a, for me, would be like a so-so tune. 
honestly speaking. And I think um, the Kennedy Center performance, I don't know how much performing Aretha had been doing, you know, in the years Mm -hmm. up to that, but definitely there's no doubt that from her earliest records to the last records and performances, she just had this sort of magic that, yeah, captured you, you know. Mm -hmm. And you could see in that video as well at the Kennedy Center that just... It was like it was like what everybody needed. Yeah, George Lucas is there having a great time. <laughs> yeah, I mean she was, she was peerless, really. Let's be honest about it. In my opinion, I think with artists like Aretha, there's I don't really think there's any point in talking about genres because um, she could have been singing any freaking genre and still be the, the best. <laughs> yeah, it's those those vowels. As soon as you hear like an ah or an ah or something, you're like, okay, well that would work. Uh, you know, you go and sing at La Scala like that, and obviously she did like Ness and Dorma and stuff. But yeah. it's just that that bit of sound is yeah. You put it any any way you like, and people will feel it. It's got that. Yeah, I, I agree. Interesting as well that even in the most kind of quite fast moving, really funky stuff that's that's kind of like feel good, I still feel like a bit of heartbreak weirdly from listening to her voice as well. And I think I don't mean that like she was a very sad person and that was how she kind of got it out or anything like that. I just think that like, yeah, she just had this crazy like resonance of, of timing and artistic decision-making that wasn't considered. It was just happening, you know, and that's where we all aspire to try to get to in a way on stage, maybe even more on stage than in the recording studio. I don't know, but. Um... Yeah. Did you, I don't suppose you caught any of the 2018, they did sort of concert film of Amazing Grace. Of like, yeah, it was sort of the making of. And there's that bit where um, James Cleveland, the music director for the thing, he just breaks down in tears. And I, that bit, I I kind of want to be him if I'm coming to hear it, you know, because he's so, he knows her voice. He knows that repertoire as well as anybody. And he's still so open to what's happening that yeah. he's just, he breaks down and someone else has to come and play the piano for him. <laughs> I think it's the chorus master. And obviously she has that effect, but I think also as a, person in an audience or a, another musician playing it's very easy to sort of go into the autopilot mode if it's rep you know and just trying to be that open yeah it's, yeah he, he basically like had the greatest job in the world <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's sort of like if you were to be the kind of the musical director for for artists tell me a better artist to be the musical director for and you're the pianist you know, because obviously sometimes the musical director might be the drummer or yeah. whatever. Maybe if we're going more into the, the classical realm, then it might be the conductor. Or if it's unconducted, it might be the concert master. You know, I think to know that you would be playing all those hooks, like the front of a uh, thing. I mean, obviously she played a hell of a lot of piano. So, you know, he had he, he had to keep on his toes. Yeah, just step in any moment. So is there anything on the 18th that for the set list that you are in danger of tearing up yourself, do you reckon? Or is it you manage to keep it under control? Because it's an awkward look sometimes, you know, if you suddenly burst into tears on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> well, my wife refers to me as like an emotional ice block sometimes. Nice. If I do tear up, <laughs> uh, at least I'll finally be able to prove that I have a heart. And also because Shalaya is amazing. So, and I think that the preparation and the planning we've sort of put into the concert and hopefully we're trying to take it where we can hopefully get it to. I just think she's, she'll, she's going to tear people up. Mm. I've got no doubt about it. 
It's not the only reason I'll come to the concert, but like, <laughs> I'm not, it's the only place I can cry is with Aretha Franklin songs. No, it's, you know what's mad about it is as well is that again, in, if we're looking, let's say like soul music within let's let's just say like within pop pop music mm. as a kind of a overall umbrella for 20th and 21st century, she has so many tunes. It's funny, Sam, isn't it? Because she has so many tunes where you get teary eyed, but they're not they're not like titanic or like yeah. <laughs> you know like lady in red or something that are like overtly cheesy and 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 designed to press the buttons it's because of of her interpret i mean some of them are her songs many are other people's songs some are reworkings of like otis people like that but she manages to get us to kind of like tear up and, and get super emotional on tunes that just i almost feel like with any other artist that wouldn't happen so that's some kind of crazy superpower that Aretha had, you know, no doubt about it. Absolutely. That's why she was the queen. And when it comes to you rearranging these songs, does it give you a little bit of extra license to know that she was often quite liberal in how she reinterpreted songs. She made them her own. Does it give you a little bit of an extra spur? I mean, because it's a, uh, a tension, isn't it, between we want to honour the thing that everyone loves and she made, but also bring it to life. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think um, definitely we're like honouring and trying to kind of really take everyone down that path on, on the night. There's a couple of tunes where we're, we're pushing it out a bit, but I feel like our intention is sort of to like, yeah, to present a kind of, I suppose, a review, a symphonic kind of review that, because, because especially as an arranger and lover of lots of records and sort of always nerding in about how they were produced and stuff, some of these arrangements, you just, it'd be a crime to rewrite it any, or to present it any other way. <laughs> and also because, again, arrangers are often sort of buried within projects and come the sort of starts of the rehearsal days I'm going to be talking with all of my fellow arrangers who've written on it I'm planning on doing a kind of an insta sort of series of interviews with them just to start bringing attention to some of these to all these amazing writers that I work with and to start kind of helping to push their work forward because as an arranger yeah you're often sort of just quietly in the background you know you're like the nerdy guy that goes in <laughs> rewrites it four minutes before the downbeat gets you know, super sweaty and stressed, and then no one ever knows who that is. You know, like you've got Arif Mardim and like you've got all these legendary people that she worked with on her records. But interestingly, speaking to different folk, she was across so much of the arrangements and, you know, she was really mm. at the core of that. So she would be telling them what's going on. Let's try this. Well, I want to do this. I want this to happen. Then they would go away and do it. And of course, in just using pop music, just as a super broad term, because it's just the easiest way to do it for now. There are often so many ways that get skinned. You know, an, art, an artist could go in and make a record with a producer and they have no input on yeah. what singing on top of or performing on top of. And it, it can be everything from that extreme to like 100% they're doing everything. Like someone like Björk, mm. you know, she's across every single nuance of her records and orchestral versions of stuff. You know, like for example, she's on tour right now, and I think that tour is 
there's not a single note that they're playing that she's not across. I think with Aretha, she was she was buried deeply into that process. And that's something that I love too, because that's a process I'm often buried in as well. Yeah. And when you're looking at a song for rearranging, particularly for Aretha, are you looking at just like, this is the single version that came out in 68 or something? Or are you going, oh, well, and then she did like this in 75. And then there's a symphonic version from 2018. You know, all these different things. I suppose it's, if you keep throwing the net wider, it gives you more things yeah. to pull in, but it also yeah. just makes your head spin a bit. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good question. We, between Shalaya and I, we've had like some really cool kind of like friendly battles along the way of like what <laughs> we want in a way. You know, let's take an obvious track. Think there are two, let's say, there are two versions, album versions, or let's say two recorded versions, which sort of stand and have different, meanings to different folk so you've got the original studio version which is a bit slower and it's like two and a half minutes there's there's no fat on the the, the meat i suppose it's it's lean there's only one key change you know and then you've got the blues brothers version which <laughs> has two key changes it's about 25 bpm faster and kind of you know hollywood through everything at it yeah. And I love both versions, if I'm honest. I, I really love both versions. And so that that was a good example of, in a way, Shalaya is, it wasn't really into the Blues Brothers version. And I was kind of like, oh, can we do the Blues Brothers version? And, and I think that, that's always a really fun process. And um, there's kind of, there are element, a little bit of elements of the Blues Brothers, but ultimately I think you've got to go, you know, I, I could set my ego aside and realise that really, <laughs> ultimately you've got to go back to the source in the end yeah. you know can't beat it um yeah. hopefully hopefully we can get that sound of the drums and some of those sounds of the production that you know that would be tricky the Albert Hall's always a bit of a tricky space yeah whoever will be mixing it you know she or he whoever's doing it I think it's a challenge on on um on a project like this to to make sure that it's popping enough for the listener when we watch it and, and listen to it on the radio you know and obviously there's a brilliant team in the BBC that can, that can cover that yeah it's interesting because often things that are achieved in the studio with a full mixing desk, everything are almost almost impossible to achieve live. And you you kind of want people to like know that it's a different thing before they turn up a little bit, don't you? Um, yeah. But uh, you've mentioned her a couple of times there. And uh, I just, Shalea is going to be your Aretha for the evening, your singer for the evening. How did it come about that you ended up working with her? And could you tell us a little bit about her I was introduced to Shalea when we were we were putting together a concert for Quincy Jones' 85th birthday in 2018. I think it was 18. And, or it might actually have been 19. I'm not sure. Anyway, but she came over and was introduced to me by Q's team. Because at that time, she was sort of working with Quincy quite a lot. And we, we performed a few tunes together. She did some MJ. She did some Rod Temperton tracks, I think. Mm. And she basically floored the orchestra, you know. <laughs> Good sign. And and off the back of that, we just kept kept in touch and became friends. And we did other Quincy shows in like Seattle and stuff before the world ended for a bit. And when the proms approached me about this this project, I kind of yeah sort of sat down for a moment and thought, okay, this is that's a, this is a tricky one, you know, because um mm. no, no small shoes to fill. Yeah. And of course. I've been involved with and we've all gone to gigs where you might have one artist, but it's covered by many people. And I, for some reason, I just felt with Aretha that that shouldn't be the case. I, 
just thought it should just be one artist and we really go for it. And I think just Shalaya has, she has elements that Aretha had, which is like, yeah, extreme vocal talent, steely performance, presence, a belief. That's it, isn't it? The belief is because it's almost a character thing, isn't it? Because you want to find that sweet spot of someone who is going to be understands the gravity of the situation of like come and, and uh, honor this you know rev, reverent repertoire but isn't then yeah overawed by it that they can actually yeah because their own stamp on it definitely because the mad thing is and i know it's like a phrase that gets used all over the place these days but she has to come and own it and it's, yeah. and it's weird and it's weirdly like a concept where part of you thinks oh maybe i shouldn't go and own it because it's a rethink you know, oh i shouldn't maybe i need to be a bit respectful but i feel like if you go then you're only walking up the first two steps of the pyramid and you've got to mm. go all the way to the top and drop kick it. <laughs> Full ownership, I think. It's the same as, I think it's the only way. And she, that's something that, that she was just brought up with. That For her, that's not even a question. You know, she, she's yeah. going to own it, but she's going to own it in her own way as well. And that's what's cool. I think it's, there's no point her coming on stage and trying to basically be Aretha because it, you know as we all know it doesn't matter who the artist is there's only they're all individual so mm. but at the same time i feel that she she understands and she she feels that music and she feels aretha's journey and is a really great soloist to have on the gig yeah hey sam i've set up a coffee donation page for the podcast what is a coffee donation page, Tim? It's like Patreon, in that it allows people to financially support creative projects they enjoy. If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description, if you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description, if you'd like to buy us a coffee, if you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. Can I ask you a maybe a slightly nerdy question now, which is to do with what you actually put in front of the players or indeed Shalea in terms of notation and like what what's on the page? Because I think and maybe it, it varies on the ensembles that you're working with, whether that's BBC or your own guys and stuff. But it's are you trying to notate every little nuance of what is already on the track and kind of does it look like a Burt Whistle score with everything in minute detail is it more of a indication like maybe a sort of traditional big band chart or I, I was blown away the other day looking at an OAE players part and it's got almost nothing on at all just no indications because they see the shapes they know it they don't need it's a yeah. reference point yeah that's a good question but didn't Burt, Burt Whistle just did like lead sheets didn't he just a couple of slash lines and some yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, you'll, you'll feel it's fine <laughs> like Harrison how do we play that line there third cornet bar 79 um, just 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 swing man um, <laughs> I think like with this yeah with this project we're we're basically the the team of arrangers brilliant arrangers Calamal Jochen Neufer oh, yeah. 
um, Tim Davis, who's based in the States these days, Tom Richards, one of my closest uh, mm. colleagues, Damiano Pascarelli, brilliant writer from Metropole's team and stuff, and mm. Tom Walsh. We can't, I think we've really gone in on the detail, but what would happen, in my experience, it's better to put the detail on the page and then jam it out and then kind of decide how much of that message we want to keep and mm. where we want to lift away and let it all be about feeling the message of the song. So coming through that sort of classical compositional um, school schooling, I think there's no substitute. And, and actually as a nerdy arranger, that's mm. no substitute for detail. You can never really put enough in the scores. Well, you yeah. can overdo some things, but, but you can never put enough in. In a track like Dr. Feelgood, for example, that's Tommy Lawrence has, has written that chart. It's a brilliant chart. You know, the piano part is really, really close to the original. And the decision made there was because that is fundamental to the success or the, the heart of the tune. Once we hit the rehearsal room, we'll start pulling things apart and we'll yeah. be looking at the beats and we'll be, you know, because as you rightly said, some things work in the studio, don't they? And sometimes <laughs> when you can translate that into a live, some things don't quite work or they need more of a lift or actually that's too big. Let's pull that out and stuff. So, yeah, yeah we, we, we throw it all in and then we, um, we kind of talk about it. I guess it's the best way. Yeah, I think the first track that I came across of yours was uh, some of the stuff on Silver. A friend sort of came and put this in my hand and said, you will enjoy this with Metropole Orchestra. And I couldn't unpick on first listening what was sort of, what's a fixed element here? What's in the arrangement? And what's kind of improvised nuance that someone's added? Or, you know, that that balancing act, especially if you're working with a, an orchestra rather than a little band of how do we keep, a feeling of fluidity, all that kind of stuff. Is that a similar discussion-based process or are you deliberately putting stuff in when you're writing it as well? I, I think um, I'll answer that like in two parts. I think yeah. as, as an arranger, often going to the live and into the studio, I, at least within my own work, I'll always put stuff in that maybe I'm not sure we're going to keep that, but I want to try that out. Yeah. And secondly, from that first part of the answer, I'll definitely start chopping and changing stuff with the pencil. Like, dude, let's bump this up the octave. Can you guys play that muted? Don't play this. Cut off on the second beat, not the first, mm. etc. Let's make this piano not whatever mezzo forte. So that was the first part. Going then in reference to the Snarky record, it was really specific because Mike mm. Mike League is an, a, a super talent and really and a really intended composer. So when it came to kind of helping him just get the dots on paper and get it all kind of in nice shape. Everything was really, really considered. I mean, obviously there were performance elements that were augmenting that. But for example, when we then went to play it live a couple of years later and toured it, you know, there are scores that we've got, I think in the archives in Holland, that is kind of everything that's getting played is on there pretty much. Wow. For some of those parts yeah. of that week. Some of the more sort of well-known snarky tunes, I guess, like Lingus and things like that. Actually, no, they're all really, they're really specific. Yeah. The thing is, what you learn through arranging sometimes is that the, the sort of bond between the rhythm section and the, and the, let's say, the orchestra is the closer you can get that bond and the tighter you can make it, the better. Because sometimes if you give the band just pretty loose, like, yeah, kind of these are the chords and 
try this or there's a hit there, but then you don't play it. I'm sort of not really into that. You play this, this is going to work. You know, um, this this 16 bars, we can open up there, but when we hit this section, it's got to be exactly mm. those dots, you know, because that way you can use the orchestra as another soloist and the band can kind of lock into that. But if it's too loose, what happens is, you know, you'll have the pianist is playing this voicing and the orchestra is playing this voicing and you often you don't have the time in the rehearsal to sort iron that stuff out as well. You know, I think a lot of these things, they're also based upon kind of judgment of, yeah, how much rehearsal time you've got and what you want to achieve from that rehearsal time. Mm. It's a bad old stereotype that music is a universal language and I don't think it necessarily holds water, but that thing of, uh, I've been in rehearsal rooms where you've got maybe players from one tradition, say, whatever, early music, rock, classical, something, and you've got players who are more used to big band jazz kind of stuff. And then actually it's harder to explain it in words. If you've notated it, then they can interpret that notation as they will. But then if you're actually trying to explain it, it just eats your time. And it must be such a premium when you're putting together something like this. Yeah, I agree. I think it, in some ways it is a universal language in that if we were performing like a symphony, I could sing the lines if it was getting played too short or something, I could just sing it a little bit like, hey guys, bar 27, can we can yeah. it sound a little bit more like this? Obviously, I'd be kind of like bricking it because my sin <laughs> attempt at that violin line might be slightly comical. At pitch, yeah. But what is universal definitely is that you can, singing and walking and heartbeats are as, you know, natural to, to anything that the human body knows. So it's universal in that no matter who I get with and no matter what I'm, what rehearsal I'm watching or whatever, you can always just sing the lines and, and sing stuff. And I think that culture in jazz is, is more, well, that's actually, that's, I'd probably be sticking my neck out then, but let's put it, let me rephrase that. That culture in the learning of jazz music is fundamental. Hmm. So, and in the blues, you know, you don't learn that stuff on paper. You don't learn that stuff by playing scales you learn that by call and response and by ear and so in that regard as well you know you take aretha's music and so much of it is, is from the, the you know from the from the gospel church i suppose you're not going to see a sheet of paper with yeah. dots on it in most of the scenarios of where that music's come from in the same way as like freddie mercury you know in front of a wembley stadium singing Dale, and then they sing it back that's the same you know yeah. that's a bit short let's make it day or, you know. <laughs> it's just a dotted crotchet there that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you can of course sometimes you, you have to jump into the the more technical way of describing it an obvious example would be like okay there's there's a, a crotchet triplet on the third and fourth beats of the bar and right now it sounds like everyone's playing it like two dotted quavers and a quaver it's sort of easier to explain it like that rather than because if you sing it the players that are still playing it like dotted dotted quite and a quaver probably you're still going to play it like a dotted dotted and quaver so in those instances you'd have to sort of jump more into kind of nerdy muso speak but mm -hmm. i guess you would always try initially to stick with the, the physical i guess i'm sort of almost moving a bit more into my own job or my own mm. work as a conductor but you try to, to stick as much as possible to the visual and the oral rather than yeah, sort of factual.
And how have you found the difference between having your arrangements conducted or led by somebody else or conducted and led by you? Because I, th- I think my gut instinct is like, oh, I'd like to be in charge, please, because <laughs> I know how it's gone. But there is, I like to think something that, you know, having someone else interpret it and bring their stuff to it, there must be a benefit to that as well, right? Yeah, definitely. I went on a summer school when I was about 25 to America. It was it was in Los Angeles and there was a, a, an amazing film and TV writer there called Jack Smalley, who's no sadly no longer around. And I'd only really been arranging, I think, for about a year or so, because honestly speaking, I never intended to be an arranger. I was intended to be like the nerdy composer, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I went on this course and we'd we'd each written a piece that we'd taken over and we were getting that played by this student ensemble. So students came from all over the world. It was called the Henry Mancini Institute. It was amazing. It was like the mm. best learning experience of my life, to be honest. I think I learned more, honestly speaking, in a month than I did in five years in college, simply because you didn't want to waste any of it. You know, mm. don't get me wrong, I was, was paying a little bit at that time for uni as well, but nothing like what the students pay now, unfortunately. Mm. No, that's a whole other... <laughs> we'll do another podcast on that <laughs> yeah anyway he jack Smalley. sorry i'm digressing jack smallly said when we went for a lesson on my piece we were talking about it and i was quite sort of uppity and sort of like oh you know the conductor's not doing this or that mm. should be like this and he was like dude like the the bottom line is when you've written your piece and you've arranged it or you've composed it once you give that to the conductor at that point you step away and you allow that conductor, allow her or him to like do their thing on it. Because that has to be their, you know, their right to, to, to express and to explore it and to enjoy exploring the work. You know, mm. of course there are going to be things like, hey, that's a B flat there, not a B natural, or like, um, you know, could, could they do this? Could they try that? But it's really important, yeah, as any young arranger I think maybe it's I think arranging and composing in that regard are a little bit different I think if you're maybe they're not let's put it like this I think like if if I was 25 years old now and I gave a piece mm. to Simon Rattle to conduct with the LSL or something do your thing dude yeah and then what he would do and what all conductors do is you know they'll find a choice moment and they'll ask you if you've got any thoughts and ultimately what you need to try to do is bullet point the most important things because you're going to get about a minute max to get that across because you don't want to break the flow of the rehearsal you know it can really kill the sort of stop and start is, is a killer to any musical space so all great all the good conductors will always give you a moment or multiple moments to discuss what could be different and then you hit them with the bullet points but make it super succinct and then they'll always um, try to give you what you want but I think in tandem with that they'll hear things within your your charts based upon their experience of what works and what doesn't and they might want to change stuff and you've got to be open to that because you have to leave your ego at the door as Quincy said it's really really crucial to the to the success of any project I think purposeful purposelessness the meaningful meaninglessness meaninglessness I should say purposeful purposeful purposelessness meaninglessness I should say Classical music pod, I should say. 
now that you're um, doing things like being chief artist in association with the BBC Symphony Orchestra and Chorus, in this situation, you're the Simon Rattle, right? Someone else is giving you the, <laughs> get the hair going. But the, uh, <laughs> um, you are working on repertoire that other people have given you. And I know that you'll have done that in, in other situations as well. But I suppose maybe you are fulfilling a slightly different ambassadorial role to the symphony orchestra who are playing Berlioz one week. And then suddenly they've got to switch gears and get right into the style world of this chart that someone's given you. Have you found different things coming out in yourself as part of that process? Yeah, I I suppose it sounds a bit poncy, but I look at myself as a producer on in that moment. So I, I guess I try to look at that chart or charts within the context of the whole programme, try to hear how we can lift it as high as it deserves to be and sometimes make decisions that might not always be agreed by the arranger based upon what I think, I guess, will make it sound better. And of course, that does naturally sound really egotistical, but it's not. It's just that you feel those decisions, again, based upon your experience of many years of trial and error, knowing mm. what's going to really work and what's not. Openly discussing those things with the arranger if you've got the time. Sometimes you don't have the time. And then sometimes you sort of have to make, I suppose, quick decisions. But... But yeah, it's like it's a it's a it's a role that you don't take for granted and you try to stay super respectful to everybody. Definitely there'll be disagreements. I've had lots of disagreements over the years with arrangers and writers and orchestras and players and stuff. But but that that kind of yin and yang energy I think is cool and it's okay, mm. you know, that it's good to have some friction sometimes. You need the rough and smooth, I think, sometimes within the process. Yeah. People have got to care. Yeah. And also just like stay open to the fact that actually, oh shit, maybe that decision didn't work. You know, yeah. you know what? You were right. Probably we should do it like this. <laughs> yes. I don't know whether all conductors <laughs> historically had have that. But uh I think there's some evidence to suggest that they haven't had that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I mean I, I see like working with orchestras, I see that as like we're a team and we're gonna work together to yeah, mm. to try to take it to the next level. And I will keep in the back of my mind that there are players, you know, even though I know how to write for these instruments, for example, you know, no one knows more about the church organ than than the player sat there, you know, yeah. last summer. Ian Farrington, who's like an incredible musician, an incredible composer and arranger. I think he, I think he wrote something for the proms this year that's that's part Hans Zimmer, it's part Planets. It's like some crazy, yeah, yeah, through composed beast. You know? <laughs> and, and last summer we actually like we, Ian was playing the Hammond, the church organ, not the Hammond organ, yeah, yeah. The church organ as part of the Moses Sunday concert I was doing. And we basically hung out in the Albert Hall at like 12.30 at night. There was no one in there. You know, he just played and I just... Something that is is so beautiful about music, which you have to forget, is that you're always going to be a student. So like at 12.30 at night, I'm just asking him these questions. Like, dude, how do you get this sound? Okay, yeah, this sounds different to this organ or blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah. he was just being super cool and open and just kind of like, yeah, we could try this, we could try this. And he can do anything really with, a, with an organ. And he, he knows so much about it and as an arranger and a writer as well he understands where the organ came from or why it came about mm. and the combination of sounds combination of timbres octaves overtones all this stuff chatting to him about it 
I suddenly I suddenly felt like I was back as a tw- as a twelve year old student, which is <laughs> you know, and I, I left the hall that night super energized by that actually, and realized yeah. that I can I can go another, let's say hopefully about another forty years or something. Hopefully, I can still be learning and have that feeling. You know? Yeah. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. I was thinking about, you know, this is, is it your 10th year at, with stuff going on at the proms? I heard Some, something, something about that. Like, something like that. I can neither deny nor confirm that. Okay. <laughs> Time, again, is, is all relative. But, like, it, I think when we're in our first opportunity, when actually we've got the most to learn, when you're at your first prom or something, because we've got that bit of, like, insecurity and stuff, or... I. I find that actually maybe we're less open to it and it, it's as we become a bit more secure we're able to take in those lessons and there's more growth the more you've grown yeah definitely because we're, when we're sort of sometimes when you're younger and you're just starting out and you're on those platforms part of you of course you know you're surrounded by all these ninjas so part of you <laughs> as a young kid thinks okay I've got to make sure that I look like I know what the fuck I'm doing and so the only problem there is that that can create a kind of a, a resistance block in front of your face that it can be in certain moments can actually end up end up meaning that you fall on your face yeah <laughs> and that happened to me in the many times definitely and i would come away thinking if i was just more open in that situation i think i would have got so much more from the music and you know also if i if i listened to the auction more i, I would mm. we would be we would take it higher you know thing of like conductors being tyrants and that they just do what they want and the auction just kind of plays and that is like so archaic it's like a hundred years old you know i mean these days it's orchestra and artists and conductor as one in my opinion and moving towards a target you know how are we going to get that target let's go yeah suppose it's been a decade say I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, i think it's more okay a decade-ish decade between friends how is that relationship evolved for you over that time yeah it's, it's been amazing it's, it's uh, i mean i guess we the first one that i did was with jamie cullen at the heritage auction back in 2010 then there was a, probably a couple of years just chilling and stuff and then i think there was then i started the bbc symphony kind of journey gently together we did a one in like 2013 or something um i think like they they like roger wright was the was a, a was amazing to me in the early days and, and kind of massive support and I don't think I'd be, be working with the festival actually if it wasn't for Rogers like kind of promoting that kind of idea at the beginning and I think yeah but what you know these days um working with David and the team it's, yeah it's always been a really open discussion and um never like agenda based it's been more like kind of yeah, what could we do? Or yeah. this year we've got these themes coming in. Is there something that would lock into that? Or also simply as, hey, we're doing this gig. Do you want to do this gig? You know, <laughs> so it's kind of it's come from lots of different angles or the discussion, the starting point of the discussion. What's interesting about the festivals, of course, is because different people feel like they have a different people have almost like a different um, image of that of that festival. So I'm sort of my words are getting a bit babbled. Yeah. So, and there's often a question that comes up which is sort of like why this music and this festival you know and my mum 
actually found a, a really cool book that she gave me a couple of years ago, which is it's from about the 1960s, and it's like a history of the problems, you know. And yeah. on the front, is it Malcolm Arnold? I'm not sure. You read through this book, and it's brilliant because it it confirms everything I knew, but it confirms it in such a sort of joyful yeah. style of text, you know, <laughs> to, to basically say that like they've always been doing these gigs. That's always been part of the, the remit of the festival, you know, like it's, it's a festival for the people, you know, first and mm. foremost, from a you know corporation or whatever to give back. So and the and the team, yeah, they've always been super cool and very, very open. And yeah, we've done some mad things together that I never thought we'd do. Yeah. Hey, well, who knows where you'll be in another decade's time? A long decade. <laughs> you know, it could be, who knows what's going to be happening? It could be bonkers. It'd be great. Hey, well, I'll um, I'll see you on Monday from behind a long way away. Yeah. Cheers, I'm fine, mate. Bye, Jules. Give me all in my lamp. Keep me burning. I agree with Nick. Give me all in my lamp. I pray. I agree with Gordon. Give me all in my lamp. Keep me burning. I agree with every single word. must have a consensus. What a nice chap that Jules is. Uh, mm. Tim, I found it very interesting hearing him talk about the appreciation of arrangers and him trying to raise the profile of arrangers that he works with. You've done a little bit of arranging here and there, Bonnie Norris's play recently. Uh, what do you think? I mean, is it an underappreciated art form? It's an interesting question. <clears throat> I, I actually think that it depends on the circumstances because there's lots of different types of arranging there's lots of different ways to orchestrate and arrange mm. you mentioned that play i did some incidental music for it was just reducing orchestral music down to piano and i actually thought that i, I stayed stuck very religiously to the notes on the mm. page of the originals and i i really i guess there's some skill involved in that but <laughs> <laughs> it was quite easy okay uh, certainly um <clears throat> on the spectrum of what an arranger could do yeah yeah it's I guess it depends on how much voice you how much your own voice you're putting into something and how much impact the end result how different the impact of the end result is to the original perhaps I, mm. I'm just trying to think of <clears throat> so as listeners and all know I work for the proms publications team and we put together program notes I think there's two interesting examples from this season it's it's publications policy not to profile an arranger in a proms program but right. would profile a composer of a piece yeah with the odd exception and this year i think the only exception to that is brett dean who orchestrated debussy's ariette oublier i think i'm saying that right hmm. uh and we we deliberately profiled him uh but i find that interesting in comparison to something like Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which Gershwin mm. wrote for a jazz band. Yeah. And that was orchestrated by uh, White Goodman's uh, resident orchestra, uh, band orchestrator arranger, yeah. uh, Ferdy Grof, I think I'm saying his name right. Uh, and arguably, Grof's work on Rhapsody in Blue, orchestrating it, uh, is what makes it such an iconic piece of crossover because it's mm. the jazz Id idiom in an orchestral context. So that is one whole step removed from the original in a yeah. very different way to what uh, the Debussy is. And Brett Dean said it himself, he stuck very religiously to the original notes and orchestrated it as though Debussy were orchestrating it. And yet 
there's no profile in the Promise publications for Ferdy Growth. It's a very long-winded way of saying, isn't that interesting? I don't know what it means. Yeah. But certainly you can't put all arranging under one umbrella. It, it's different each time. It's horses for courses, isn't it? <laughs> one thing you didn't ask, Jules, in your conversation was that slightly twittery question of why is what you're doing appropriative are you appropriating the music mm. of black artists in your work talk to me about that why didn't it come up it's a question i'm sure if you go into the comment section of tweets uh, about his prom will crop up because it's the kind of thing people like to say and i my personal hot take on cultural appropriation has always been that uh, it's different from cultural appreciation and so if you just skim off the top commercial layer of a art form from somewhere else in the world, say, mm. uh, then you sell that in a market that isn't available to the people who originally created it. Mm -hmm. That's appropriation. Um, the music and lyrics song, what is it? Wait, um, oh, God. A sh shanti, shanti. Shanti, shanti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Way back in July. Yeah, where she's sort of having a buddhist week or something um that's appropriation to me whereas appreciation is always what i felt is going on with jules's work because he is so steeped in it i think from that first part of the conversation where he's talking about aretha franklin and talking about what it means to him and you know frankly what it it means to me listening to that music i if you have done the work to learn and understand it and appreciate it mm -hmm. and serve it uh to me, you should be able to be an Aretha Franklin fan, no matter what you look like, where you're from in the world. And if your fandom leads you to producing wonderful music of your own um, or creating wonderful music that other people can share, then I think that's a really good thing. Um, I think for me, the problems come when, yeah, appropriation is, is someone not having done the work. We went to that terrible concert in Peckham where someone had tried oh, to gasping. splice together... DJing and um, Dixit Dominus. Yeah, and I found that they just hadn't done the work. There wasn't really a problem of cultural appropriation there, but it was no. two cultures interacting, or mm -hmm. two musical cultures interacting, and uh, it didn't work. And I think that mostly appropriation you can kind of smell because it doesn't artistically work. Someone mm -hmm. hasn't got under the bones of what's going on. So I didn't ask him because I didn't think it was relevant to him. I think it's probably relevant to some people. But yeah. and if I get to interview one, I'll ask. Yeah, and you know, if there's any listeners who object to that point of view, we would love to hear from you because we're not the last word, are we? We're not the last word, and it's a very subtle, nuanced conversation, and we don't want to shut out any of that nuance. We want to embrace it. Mm -hmm.